was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am joined once again by the cabaret legend, Steve Ross. I know you're all eager to hear the second half of this interview, so without further ado, here it is. Asking you, you performed a tribute to Fred Astaire, I won't dance off Broadway. So, right. do you dance yourself? No. I was always uh, well. I, I can ballroom dance. I can do that, uh, and I uh, was pretty good at it. But then, um, when they when they all found out I could play the piano, I would be more or less in the band rather than. Dance. I, I don't really no. I, as as far as Fred Astaire tapping and fancy moves, no. The answer is. Mm-hmm. Definitively, no. Which isn't to say I wouldn't like to, but I don't. Have you always been interested in Fred Astaire, or has he been someone that you've always been inspired by? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, you know, I cannot remember the first time I was exposed to him. I had my own personal Auntie Mae in New Rochelle. Took me to shows and showed me about... She taught me how to dance, in fact. She... uh, I don't know whether we saw, I think, I think we went to, she took me a couple of times to Radio City in the 50s and 60s, and one time we did see um, Swing Time, I believe that was it, and uh, that was my first exposure to Fred Astaire, and then I heard him, what was intriguing to me is that uh, I realized that you didn't have to be a big singer, I mean, as I had my concerns about singing and didn't really sing that much in those early days. But I thought if I could sing, it would be somewhat like that because he sings in a very unforced, very natural, stylistic and classy way. Of course, he had the greatest songwriters in the world writing for him. But I thought, well, he made me feel in a way, as they say in Chorus Land, well, I could do that. I felt I could sing his songs. They weren't very rangy. They weren't, here's a name that you may remember called Mario Lanzo. He was a very popular mid-20th century Italian-American singer, but he sang uh, all these big, legit songs, Be My Love, and all that. And so I didn't have that kind of voice, and I didn't have a lot of those voices that were around. But I thought, well, gee, I have a kind of, I have a voice that could probably do this milder, not demanding singing that Fred Astaire does. So uh, it was very encouraging when I heard him sing gracefully and, and not, you know, belting and not requiring much except um, a great communication of the words, which is my path. So how were you able to find and research the songs that he wrote? You say that in your act you have songs that he himself wrote? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I remember reading that he wrote songs. And uh, so I have, through various sources over the years, uh, I think a couple from Michael Levine, song music guru, 
I got a couple from him. And I had, did she, there was a recording of his singing songs, but I, when I read the biographies, of which there are many, uh, they spoke about his own songwriting. And he was very musical. He, play, he played the piano, he played the drums in uh, several of his movies. He did different musical instruments. But he was intensely musical, and it comes it no surprise that he would be writing songs. And I liked the songs very much. They were charming. He had mm. one kind of a hit, a kind of a hit in the late oh, 30s, okay. called um, He Went With Johnny Mercer, Thank You Very Much. I'm Building Up To An Awful Letdown was the closest he came to having a, a standard hit on the hit parade. But he wrote a, he wrote a lot of very catchy, old-fashioned songs. And I've seen a couple of them in my act. He wrote a, a, a wonderful one later on with a Los Angeles lyricist named Tommy Wolfe, who wrote with Fran Landisman. They were wrote kind of jazzy songs in the 50s and 60s. And with Fred, he wrote a song called City of the Angels. So when I play out in L.A., I always oh. sing that. That sing that song because it's about Los Angeles. So I would like to also ask about some of your other specific shows. So one of the shows, the song is you, features a song written by you. So describe sort of what that song is and how you wrote it. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's, you're digging. Uh, I think it was a song I wrote with. Uh, it, yes, I think it was a song I wrote with. Uh, a wonderful lyricist named Barbara Freed, F-R-A-E-D, who wrote a couple of shows for Cy Coleman, Marvelous Woman. And uh, she encouraged me to write. So, I, yeah, I did. it was a song written with her. And she wrote the words, and I set them to, to a tune. I just thought it would be interesting for the audience to hear that. But I don't have a shingle out that I am a songwriter. As I've spoken to you before, I have about four or five songs that I enjoy, that I think are good, and not just padding out the songbook, uh, which I hope to record one day. But this particular one was nice. Yeah, it was nice working with a pro, and she adjusted and we adjusted. And that was, that's the story of that particular song. So when do you sort of decide to incorporate an original song into one of your acts? I've incorporated, I've written... As I said, the songs that I like had to have written often very popular. City songs are very popular because oh. you can always. So I wrote the song I'm most proud of. I wrote two that I really like. One is called Manhattan Moon. I'll have to send you an MP3 of that. And uh, about Manhattan, a love song. And then there's another one called Whenever I Think of Paris that I'm quite proud of. Those two would be my big non hits. Uh, when it's appropriate, if I do a New York show, I would put that one in. Uh, or if I do a French show, I often put that in. It's, they're there waiting for me. I haven't written any other songs, really. It's interesting, I always think with my uh, acknowledged by me uh, interest in words, and we've talked about that, words coming first because I didn't have a big voice, I went to wordy songs. I, I have no patience with lyrics. I'll tell you a story. When I, I had um, this Parisian song came about like this, if I may give its history briefly. The, uh, 
uh, I was recovering from some ill-fated love affair, and the, mm. the object of my affection was French. So I thought, well, isn't this what isn't this what spurs songwriters to write unrequited love and all that? So I decided I wrote this tune. I had the first four or five bars of this melody in my head, and um, then I was visiting a friend in Florida. And he said, oh, well, I'd like to set that to lyric. Uh, let me put a lyric to that. Oh, okay. And we worked on it back and forth, and it came back to be very nice. No, well, I, I'm sorry, I get ahead of myself. I had the tune in my head, and I wrote down the music. I was taking a long bus trip, so I thought this was going to be just like the movies. Uh -huh. I will write this wonderful mm -hmm. lyric, and by the time the bus trip is over, I will be able to present that, not to the driver, of course, but uh, <laughs> it, just have it. I couldn't get beyond the first phrase. Oh. Mr. Word, Mr. Word, Mr. Clever, I could not get beyond the first phrase. And I was given a humbling new appreciation of the cleverness and this talent that it takes to write something original and fresh in the lyric world. Fortunately, the lyric that was written, I think, has those qualities. But then since I'm living with the songbook on a day-to-day -day basis, and I I read these great lyrics, these poetic and truthful lyrics. I have immense admiration for the people who have that craft. It's not something I do, unfortunately, but I sing them, but I don't write them. If you, those things that you have tried to write, do you find yourself sort of emulating some of the composers that you like to sing as well? Or? Yeah, that's interesting. No, uh, uh, no, I don't, actually. I mean, I'm sure that all of those all the, it was Jerry Herman has a song, Everything That Was, Is, from Dear World. I'm sure in all of these decades of listening to music that I have certain harmonies and all of those things are implanted. So when I sit at the piano to improvise a melody, it isn't necessarily not going outside the box. I, I have, it's within the musical framework that, I, that I'm familiar with. And um, sometimes a melody comes, and sometimes it doesn't. But I, I don't emulate any particular style. It's just good songwriting from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Yeah. So I do want to ask you, your Fred Astaire show, which we were talking about, has sort yeah. of a biographical through line. But how do you sort of manage to create a through line, even for a show that isn't about one person? Like, I'm your... not a great believer in... Perhaps the I, I know what the, I know what through line means, of course. But as I've said, um, I'm not necessarily I do not strive for that necessarily. Oh. And when I first heard when I first heard the great Mabel Mercer sing her songs, um, and you say, "Well, now she's did a set. Was it an act? Yeah. It it was fifty minutes of singing." And did it have a through line? All it had was 50 minutes of variety of songs, beautifully paced, a couple of ballads, and then it's time for a slightly funnier and maybe with a rhythm. So you get, it's a somewhat arbitrary choice. I mean, you could put uh, 14 songs in cards on the table and shuffle them around and still have a good show. If each of the songs is good and you're a good performer. I never had the, the feeling that she was necessarily building an act. I just had the feeling when it was all over and I told you before, she never spoke. 
never in between songs. And so I just felt so moved and satisfied at the end of the performance because it was 40 music, 40 minutes of beautiful singing. So that's how I think about it. I don't, although I do have a friend who helps me quote unquote direct the shows that I do uh, the most recent ones. And uh, when I put all, say if it's a show about, the last show I did at Birdland was about the 70s. So I got all, I got my pile out, I call it the rock pile. I got all the songs out from the 70s. And we ran through them, and I told him, yeah, I like this one, I like this one. So we put it into a, an A pile, and then I assembled a show, and then I played it for him. And he said, well, I, every... But what you're doing, instead of a through line, he said what is helpful is if the songs are pertinent to what you're doing. And yeah. that would mean if I want to sing, because I remember uh, my opening remarks, which I wrote, gave him and the audience a clue. These are song, love songs from the 70s, it was supposed to be. So I had a couple of songs in there that were, in fact, were not, in fact, love songs. I don't know whether they were protest songs or anything. But this director friend of mine knows me forever, and he knows my voice, and he knows that I can get a little bit off the rails with a song that I really like, and it doesn't work for me. He is an audience member. Not only is he a friend, but he's a paying customer, too. So he guides me. He says, I think this song might be better for you, talking to me. Um, and we shaped the show, and it turned out to be a, a really nice show. And I felt that every song was indeed pertinent and germane to the topic. And people seemed to enjoy the show. But it, sometimes that kind of guidance, that's the kind of through line, is the only thing approaching the through line that I would use. So... I actually was going to ask you about this. One of the things I noticed in researching is that sometimes you do work with a director and sometimes you don't. So when do you sort of feel like you prefer working with one and when without? Yeah, indeed. Um, I wasn't working with a director in the beginning. I just put the songs together. When I began at the Algonquin with, I think I've mentioned the name, it was very important in my world a gentleman named Donald Smith, who was a cabaret impresario and was the one who dreamed up the cabaret convention, which you know about, do you not? Yes, I do. The, the one that just happened. Uh, it was his idea to assemble all the cabaret people. Um, so it was his idea, I may have mentioned this before, I had moved to the Algonquin, was just doing sets, and I'd get up and sing, and half or whatever, and then sit down, get up. And he said, well, let's do something slightly more formalized, do an evening of Jerome Kern, which was the very first one I did. So, well, I had to kind of put that together. I don't think that was directed. I may have done what I always do, is to play it for a couple of friends who came by to see if they weren't falling asleep in the middle of it. But uh, then later on, I met a very astute and good musical person, a friend of mine in... England, and I had done a show over there at a club that I was working in, and uh, it was it was okay, I guess. It was Noel Coward, and I certainly love Noel Coward, but he quite boldly and ultimately very helpfully said, you don't seem very interested in the singing anymore, 
And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, well, you didn't seem to be as focused or as attentive to the words as I've heard you in the past. I could help you, says he to me. And um, something good, an instinct I had, uh, which was to get over myself and say, well, okay, let's try something. And he, I sang the songs again for him, and he pointed out performance styles, not necessarily when and where to sing. But he said, I don't understand the words. Aren't you singing a little bit more quickly? Sing this more thoughtfully, because I thought I was being the cast meow with everything I sang, but no one uh, actually can, I can't go on without having a little bit of editing and hearing other ears do what I do. So he listened to that, and he gave me some very good pointers about singing, pausing, singing quietly, and, and how to point a, a funny song. So that was our first uh, collaboration. His name is Duncan Knowles, and we worked on many shows. He lives in London, but he would come here, or I'd go there, and we would do the process I had of putting all the songs on the table. And we did, gosh, we did a Kandra and Epp show together, and we developed a nice, um, agreeable, smooth working process. Like, I guess that songwriters do, or c c collaborative creators often do. So I would do my thing, he would say A list, B list, let's try the A list again. Maybe we need uh, to do a key change in this song, or I think we need a little bit of talk here. So he would help me create these last four or five shows that I've done, except for the 70s shows. And he was quite wonderful. I, I said to my, I said, he said, he loves Sondheim, of course, well, who doesn't? And he said, um, you know, I think you could do a Sondheim show. And I demurred, I said, mm -hmm, Sondheim. It's now all those, the great Sondheim songs are sung by women. They said, I don't think so. Or even if they are, we can make them work for you. Well, of course, I then um, got my courage up, and I developed the Sondheim show that I did about 15 years ago, which people seem to like, including the composer himself, who came one night. Uh, but that was because of my friends keeping me focused, which is often something that I am not, right on the material and exactly every note, and we did it. Uh, so I was very grateful, and I have been grateful to him all these years for helping me learn how to do that better. So that's what I... These were tribute shows, meaning they were shows of certain composers. Um, I think I did a funny show once, and he helped me pick the funny songs. But um, if I ever do another song, I, I will have someone along with me keep, keeping me along, you know, in the straight and narrow as far as the performance. Not the performance, I think you're pretty good in the performance now, but as far as the selection of the songs, that's how I would do it. I mm. always use other ears, even when I'm right be getting ready to do a show, I have what I call them the, what do I call them? Oh, the Privy Council, think that I'm an Anglophile. So I have four or five friends. So I bring them over here, I can't do it now, and I feed them and I give them drinks and I say, would you listen to my show and, and give comments? And they give, they give good comments because they know me and they, know, and they like the music. And um, it's been very helpful doing it that way. That's my process anyway. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you to elaborate on something you said, which was you were saying that Sondheim came to your show. So I know that Noel Coward and Cole Porter obviously have not been alive for a long time, but have there been composers who you've actually been able to meet or work with on? Not work mm -hmm. with. Sondheim came, and it was a huge thrill. Uh, 
and uh, of course, uh, who other, the only other two greats that heard me sing were Burton Lane. Oh. Um, I, he heard me sing a song of his once, and a wonderful, charming man. I did have the great pleasure for performing or playing songs by them, for them, along the way. But a special treat was uh, when I was working at the Stanhope Hotel, which had a cabaret for two or three minutes back in the 90s. And I got word that that um, Hal David, as oh. in David and Akarak, was coming to the show. And I one of the songs that I became connected with, it's on my early record, it's called 99 Miles from L.A. It has a wonderful lyric by him. So I had the great pleasure of his being in the audience, and uh, there it was, and I sang the song for him, and he wrote me a lovely note, so there was a nice completion about that. Unfortunately, Messrs. Coward and Porter weren't around, so they couldn't write me notes, but I hope they like what I do with their song. So I want to ask you, when you're doing an act, what do you think are the sort of appropriate amounts of singing and talking, which I know you were saying Mabel Mercer did none of, but you do a little of? A percentage. Mm, maybe. Uh, well, depending on the show. The show I did for, uh, I've done a couple of shows of German and Austrian material at the... Um, at the Neue Gallery on 86th and 5th Avenue, they have a uh, they had a cabaret there with German people, and Uta Lemper used to sing there. So I did a couple of shows there. And that required more talk, which was fine, because I can do talk and be amusing and all of that. Um, it depends on the show, really. I don't have a set percentage. I would never like it to be more than about maybe a quarter of the show. Or maybe a third at the most. Because, you know, people have come to hear me sing and not necessarily to give, to hear a, an academic expression. It's not a lecture at the Met, which I gave for a long time. And then it was all much more singing and then, I mean, much more talking and then illustrating by singing. Uh, so that's, uh, I would say maybe about a, a, a fourth of the event or maybe a third of the time for the act would be in talking, little intros to the song, stories about them, if such there be, like that. Well, I want to ask you, when you get asked to perform at a venue, do you ever sort of dictate which act you do based on the venue and the audience, or do you usually get asked to do a certain act? No. Uh, so the only one I get asked to do is... Uh, uh, the composers or the people that my, my I call them, not my Bermuda Triangle, I call them my triangle, which is Astaire, Coward, and Porter. Because I do, I'm known for them, and I, um, a lot of times people see me, and in my old-fashioned way, I, or resembling or, or recalling these people and that classic age from New York and London. So, if it's a whole new um, venue that's never heard me before, I might do my Fred Astaire show or my Porter show. Coward, maybe. Coward, I always feel, 
is not necessarily as well known as the other two in America if I'm going out into the hinterlands. So I would probably do uh, one of those shows or what I really prefer is just to do a show, an evening with, wherein I can do all these different things. Of course, it's always Porter, Coward, and Astaire, but then I can do French, and I can do German, and I can do Funnies, and Irving Berlin, and all that. Um, so I, it's not connected with the, um, unless they ask for those specific shows, because the reviews say, oh, well, this is Mr. Fritz Astaire, this is Mr. Cole Porter. I get that sometimes, but not all the time. Most of the time they just say, you know, come along and do what you want to do. Yeah. Well, you've also performed shipboard. You perform on different voyages across the ocean. So what do you think is sort of the experience of performing while at sea? Well, other than praying that you don't get seasick and that the evening you're on, the ship isn't rocking too much. Uh, it's same thing. I mean, I just did, when I was on the QE2, I did my Fred Astaire show and the Cole Porter show. I mean, I just do the stuff that I'm, I'm known for. Uh, there's no difference. And the audience, uh, if you've ever, you haven't yet, I suspect, maybe you have, uh, taken an ocean voyage or a long cruise. Uh, so they have their choices. They, most of the people come to the shows because there's not much else to do except go to a movie and go to the show in the club that's on the ship. So most of them come, and so I, I try to paint it with broad strokes. I do very few unknown songs. Yeah. I, try to, I try to do funny songs, keep, keep it up, upbeat, funny songs and, and well-known songs. Those are my criteria for a shipboard show, because it's just, they don't want to be here sad laments that maybe a New York cabaret audience might want to sit and weep into their champagne, but not board a shipboard. Keep it up and keep it upbeat and lively and all that kind of thing. That's what I do over there. It works fine. Yeah. So in your show, Gotta Have Heart and Hammerstein, you compare no. the two lyricists. So right. whose work do you personally prefer? Either singing or just as a lyricist? Yeah, so that's asking the Italian mother, which child do you prefer? Uh, I like them both. Um, I don't really have a preference. I, I can't say, I. that's with all of the composers that I sing. I don't have, I mean, I have a song of Cole Porter's that is reputedly my favorite song, which it is my favorite song. But uh, I don't like superlatives necessarily, and I don't, not superlatives, I mean preferences. I, I, the reason I put those two together is, well, because they were with the genius of Richard Rogers being the glue. But um, I have lovely experiences singing both. I probably sing more of Lorenz Hart because uh, of the, the, the vocal expectations yeah. of his song. His songs can be a wordy, and the use of words, both in the bittersweet songs, and is more a little bit closer to me than singing the uh, the more declamatory "Oh, what a beautiful morning" and all the the bigger, more legit sounding Rodgers and Hammerstein shows. But the the fun part about the Hammerstein thing was doing songs in a more quiet, reflective way that people were not used to. So that was kind of. Uh, 
showing the audience that all of these songs, if they have good bones, as it were, can be turned around and made slow and fast and turned into swing numbers. And, and I, I got, sometimes get have a lot of fun giving a new treatment to a, a song that they only know maybe from um, from the original recordings. Yeah. So is there any popular composer whose work that you don't enjoy singing, either that you've tried and haven't liked it or just would not want to do? Hmm. Um, any uh, great American songbook composer, do you mean? Yes. Not, yeah. not of, of these days. I don't no, no, no. Yeah, I understand what you mean. Oh, I thought about that. Um, they're so varied and so wild. No, I, I can't really say that, I can't really put down on paper, well, I will never sing the songs of X, because I don't really like the way he writes. I just say if it's a good song, if it speaks to me and the melody's nice and, and I can relate to it and I feel I can distill it and shoot it out to the audience. There's, the answer to your question is no. There's no particular composer whose work I don't like singing. So I want to ask you, as both a music historian and as a singer, do you believe that the work of lyricists depend on their composers or vice versa? Right. That's a tricky one because everyone always asks, and it's a, it's a, a cliche. Everyone asks, which comes first, the songs yeah. or, the, or the words? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm so used to um, in, investigating this very question with Lerner and Lowe and Berlin and Porter, the ones who write all of them themselves. Uh, I don't necessarily. Each, each is an individual experience, each one. I think uh, there's a very interesting guy who is devoted to the Great American Songbook named Roger Crane. And he has a uh, internet column. Uh, he's a gentleman of my vintage, and he just knows, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of songs. And he sends a lot of obscure songs, and he gives links to recordings of them, and he discusses the songs. Uh, the lesser-known ones, some of them are lesser-known for <laughs> good reason, but some are a gem. So I, 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 I hear that, and he often comments, well, here's a song with a beautiful melody by Mr. X with a not particularly distinguished lyric, but because the melody is so pretty, here are three versions of it, or vice versa. So there are songs that, that have more pedestrian lyrics but have beautiful melodies, I would venture to say that that scenario would be more more um, common, perhaps, than a, a brilliant lyric with a bad melody. Somehow, um, the melody, in my experience, you could have a lovely tune and it's somewhat hampered by this not particularly inspired melody, uh, uh, set of words. But I don't know the interchanges. I mean, Jerome Kern worked with a lot of wonderful lyricists, and some of them are less inspired than another, but basically there's a, a standard. I always thought it would be interesting to, I'm sure they've done it in classes of, say, here's a melody, and give it to three different composers and say, come back with what you've come up mm -hmm. with. And it would, be, it would be interesting to hear words applied to, to each, uh, each three sets of words to this tune. 
Um, I don't know about the interchange of it. It's just individual with each pairing. Whether you're the pair inside your own self, like Berlin or Porter or Lesser, or um, or you're working with another composer. It all depends. Yeah, but I well, want to ask you in your Cole Porter show, which you have, you sort of cover the stages of his writing from the twenties to about the fifties. So, is there a stage of Porter that you prefer? Oh yeah, oh. it would be the, it would be the, the stage that I prefer in almost any of the great composers, which would be the thirties. Yeah, and it's a it was a strange. Well, every decade in America, strange, but or Gloria, it was a time of an extraordinary, uh, how do I say, confluence of mm. of amazing lyricists, many from Germany or from the German tradition who were fleeing the Nazis and uh, and came here, or had or parents were immigrants, grandparents were immigrants, all the Harburgs, all the authors, the Gershwins. So they flowered in their early uh, adulthood of writing, and as, as did the lyric, as did the composers. And Cole Porter, my favorite, really came into his own with his four or five shows that he wrote in that decade. And here was a decade mm -hmm. with the Depression, and uh, the country uh, coming out of that and in turmoil, and yet it was unsurpassed, in my view, by the chic of the Art Deco movement and the polish and refinement of the songs and the stories and many of the novels that were written in that period. So that's my favorite period, in fact. And uh, it would be my favorite period of, of Cole Porter's as well. And then in the early 40s, he was a little on the fallow side until he came up, of course, with his fantastic late-in-life succession success with Kiss Me Kate. But the, the, the 30s, I think, for most of my chosen composers is my favorite decade for them. Well, in the Cole Porter show, as well as in Travels with My Piano, which is another show you have, you perform music by international composers as well. So who oh, yeah. are some of your particular favorite international composers to perform? Well, um, Jacques Brel, the Belgian-French composer, who uh, I perhaps spoke of that when his show, Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris, came to the village gate in the 70s. It just blew everybody away because no one had heard continental cabaret before. I mean, it was going on since 1880 in Paris, but no one had heard these biting, uh, satirical, and, and moving and edgy songs. So that's all. That's what they were in those days. They still are, but they really came out of the blue in the in the seventies. We had really hadn't thought too much about them. Of course, popular music in the sixties was all of that, but theatrical music wasn't. Anyway, so I I, I enjoy singing Jacques Brel a lot, and I sing a bit of. I do a big medley of the songs of Edith Piaf. And I do a medley of the songs of Charles Trenet. Those are the French ones I do. It's mainly French or the, is the international one. Yeah. Although I have a couple of uh, songs I sing in German. And uh, I have a, a song I sing in Portuguese. A couple of songs oh. in Portuguese. And I think one time I did a, Spanish, a couple of Spanish songs. 
I, and English, of course, international meaning English would do a lot of English songs, if you could see the song list of those things. Uh, so not necessarily covered, but just pop songs, like, uh, I don't know, the White Cliffs of Dover, songs that would be popular in the war, and in reviews beforehand in the war and after. So it would be English in the order of frequency, English, French, German, and Portuguese. Yes. Do you ever find that international songs have different sort of rhythms or oh, patterns? I approach all the songs different, uh, the same, the same way. Uh, I, I presume that the melody is good, or I buy it good, and um, and I and I see I translate it in my head. I generally like to when I sing a song in, in another language for an American audience. Uh, it it's, enhances the value of the uh, or the value of to say the uh, the pleasure if the audience is given a little bit of an idea of what the story is being told in that song. So, or if it's a different story. Often I might sing, like an example, Chaffonet did a song called Caresse-t-il de nos amours, What's Left of Our Loves, and it was a very nostalgic looking back kind of Gallic song, but then it was made into I Wish You Love. Someone, an English, an American writer wrote that. So I often, I might talk a little bit about the difference and then sing one and sing and then I sing a chorus in French and a chorus in English. So I kind of ease them into the internationality, if there's mm -hmm. such a word, of the songs. And uh, when I, you must, you know, I know you know the song from Cabaret Married. Well, in the movie, it had a German verse. So I sing that, and I then I sing the American one. And um, I try to mix it up a little bit like that. But the approach is the same. Um, Often the the lyrics, or the lyrics translation thereof, from Spanish songs or something like that, are not particularly profound. They're effective. They're nice, but they're more, you know, superficial love song. Yours mm -hmm. forever, mine, and I love you forever. So they're not Sondheim, I'm sure, at the other mm -hmm. end of the spectrum. But but the the melodies are nice, and for my audiences, they're familiar, and as I've said before, there's nothing more potent than a familiar song. And the audience can relax and let their memories go to that song and when they heard it, and they don't have to work. But as in a Shakespeare play, you need a little bit of comic relief, so every now and then I make them work a little bit, and here's a new song, ladies and gentlemen, and yeah. they have to pay attention. And then they can relax with an old song. But uh, as I said, sometimes the, the translations are not particularly inspired, but the songs are nice, and so you, I don't require that. I just sing the nice songs that many in my audience would know. So one of the shows that you do that you've mentioned before in this interview is My Manhattan, which is songs about oh, yeah. the city. the New York show, yeah. So what are some of the songs that you've been able to find that aren't as well-known about New York? Oh, gosh. Let me see. Well, certainly one that's not well known is one I wrote oh. called Man Manhattan Moon. So here are a couple um, uh, that are actually some of them are indeed lesser known. I won't ask if you know them. I'll just mention them. Um, Please don't monkey with Broadway, Cole Porter. 
uh, Another Hundred People, we all know that one, Penthouse Serenade, Streets of New York, Victor Herbert, Autumn in New York, famous one, Vernon Duke, and uh, here's a good one, Doing the Uptown Lowdown, that was from some show in the 30s. Oh, a beautiful Peter Allen, of the songwriters of the 70s, he's one of my favorites, called 6.30 Sunday Morning. And then, of course, Manhattan. We'll have to we'll take Manhattan. And then another Rodgers and Howe song, I've Got to Get Back to New York. Tree in the Park is one of theirs. And George M. Cohan. And uh, <clears throat> My Personal Property by Frank Coleman. And uh, I always end with I Happen to Like New York, which is Cole Porter. So it's a mixture, as you can hear. Those would be probably a greater percentage of lesser-known songs than... I do not do New York, New York. I suppose I could, but I don't. Yeah. Um, but what carries that show is the fact that it's about the city that people are sitting in. So, uh, so I already have... Then I, it's not doing rare songs about some place they don't even know. So the theme is familiar if the songs aren't. So I think people would be... are interested in hearing those. I mean, if you go to an exhibit of paintings about New York, you go, well, here's this painting, here's that painting. It's kind of a museum collection of different songs. And that's one of my favorite shows since I love New York and I've lived here all these years. So that's that one. That's my Manhattan. So is How? there another themed show that you would like to do? Oh, that's hard. Oh, that is really hard. Uh, because I've kind of done all the big composers um i could do maybe a decade or so i've kind of run out of of ideas i was trying to think about that recently who whom else could i do Geats and schwartz maybe if it had to be a composer theme i've done i've done every all the greats every current berlin uh Rudin and Lowe, Rodgers and hammerstein her Rodgers and hart kendra and ebb um, I don't really know whom I do. I, uh, the answer to the question is no. If you have any ideas, help. <laughs> and then how do you usually sort of come up with one for maybe one of your existing acts? A theme? I just think about whom I have, and if it's a theme of a composer, I just go through, I am my director of the moment. I just go through, you know, whom do I like or whom, ha whom haven't I done? But... Um, Often I solicit uh, suggestions from my privy council, and they say, well, you haven't done a show about this, and I say, oh, you're right, I haven't done a show about that, so I could do that. I mean, we're in this strange, non-performing moment, but if I had to do a new show, um, I have no idea what that would be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At this point, probably, I would, because I have all of these shows in, in my cupboard or not necessarily totally in my fingers but they're reclaimable i would probably do a show that i have done i've done a bunch of shows as you can see on the site and there are others mm -hmm. there that i can't even mention i would pick up one of those that i hadn't done for a while and then would just do that one frankly that's probably what i would do i can't think of i've been trying to think of it could be oh there's one show i haven't done yet oh. it, it would be very audacious but audacity, why not? Uh, my nephew is a wonderful musician, guitar player, 
and a musical pundit. He knows so much, especially about early blues, early blues. And he, um, so he always thought I should do a song called uh, From Blues to Broadway or something like that. And I could sing some blues, but I mean, you know, I'm an old white guy. I don't, people not, might not buy me singing songs traditionally connected with black singers. But uh, uh, I, that was intriguing because then we, we went to all the various Broadway shows in the way you, yeah. so we were trying to do all the shows that had blues in them and or songs that were blue. Uh, I On my Sondheim album, I recorded what I thought was a good version of Buddy's Blues. Uh, there were a lot of songs that weren't blues as such. Uh, marvelous Harold Arlen, of course, was the bluesiest of all of the composers in the black tradition here in Gershwin. He sang a song from St. Louis Woman. He wrote one called, I've got a right to sing the blues. So it's a proper song, and it's about the blues rather than, I woke up this morning and my woman's done gone. You know, it's not exactly mm. as raw as the, uh, a traditional old blues song would be. So that would that was one show that intrigues me, and there are many songs that are happy blues songs, mm. oddly enough. So that I come to think of it, yeah, that would be the one show if I wanted to do a new show that I would do. But people at this point, I mean, I have I'm very lucky to have very devoted followers. They would come to see something. They might be put off by that. And, oh, well, we like Steve to sing Fred Astaire or Cole Porter. So I'd have to come up with something vaguely connected with that theme that those composers did or something, you know. But uh, I, I was intrigued by Blues to Broadway, so that may be the next thing by the time this is all over. Well, I want to ask you, which one of your shows is, do you consider the most challenging to sort of perform? Sondheim. Sondheim. Yeah, it's the hardest. The arrangements were trickiest. Um, more demanding. They were actually, they were, that would be the hardest one to, to get back into my fingers. The voice is still there. But the arrangements, because they were elaborate, uh, and his music is so demanding and complex, that that doesn't trip off the fingers. My Berlin show, I could pull back in a week or so, but not Sondheim one. No, that would be the hardest one to get back. So you've done, as you were mentioning, many recordings of your cabaret acts. So from listening to them, how much of a sense of what it would be like to see it in person could we get from it? Could a listener get from it? Hmm. Um, well, often some of the recordings are live, so mm -hmm. the, which I like because it's cabaret show is a live medium and, uh, I don't know how you feel about listening to a live recording of anybody as opposed to a, you don't get it in theaters because you don't, unless it's a bootleg recording, you hear mm -hmm. applause. But I like law, I like when I'm listening to a singer, I, I like both. I like the energy that the applause after the song gives the listener. So, oh, gee, I feel as if I'm in the cabaret and I order another drink. And, and that kind of helps the response of the person sitting at home listening, but also um, you just the song itself. And there, I have many, many albums, many, many great albums of all the great singers that just went into the studio and recorded their songs. Uh, 
I'm often asked if I prefer singing live or recording, and I both have their merits. The live one, because the desire to entertain is a bit of an impetus to do that, and uh, the excitement of having the approval right there with people's applause and their looks and their faces, that uh, often inspires me to do stuff that I wouldn't necessarily do privately. Because the adrenaline starts to rush and says, oh, can I sing that note? Well, I'm just going to sing it. And I do. Or uh, can I slow it? it? It inspires me to take more chances when I'm doing it. Sometimes when I'm doing it in front of people. But uh, I'm just in the process, as I mentioned, of setting up my home studio where I'm hoping to do a lot of these YouTube recordings. Um, and just seeing some of them, just for the guy setting it up, uh, I also feel very free in a curious way. So on one hand, we have the adrenaline rush of the audience making me be bold about how I sing something because they're there. And then the other is just musically more free in a way, mm -hmm. um, singing songs and not having to worry about whether the audience is liking it or not. Not that it's a worry. It's like going out on a date and watching movie by yourself or going with someone, you're looking over, oh, is this person really liking this? Is it bored? Why have I made the mistake? You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So uh, uh, there are merits to both of them, especially if the, if the material is good. Sometimes late at night when I'm rehearsing and I'm looking at a song, I just let, my, I let it all flow. I, I try mm -hmm. everything and I do it slowly. I do it loud, soft. And that's fun to, to learn how to do it that way. So the basic would be, if I'm working on a show, I, I get the song that way, I do it, the, the director and I work it out, and then I do it for the group of people, and that's already the next degree of adrenaline. And as a matter of fact, it is a little bit of a sidebar. Sometimes um, I get a whole bunch of songs, and the director is here, and sometimes we think, oh, this is a song in the A-list. So I bring, I bring my pals over, and three bars into the song, I don't know how it happens, I realize from the end that this song is not working. Oh. Sometimes the director will say, we can make it work, but I just realized that it's not for me, and I didn't know that until I sang it in front of people. So there is something that happens in the energy exchange of the singer and the audience that is very instructive for me. But mm -hmm. say, for example, if I'm doing a YouTube or a recording, here of uh, songs. These are mainly songs that I know that have never been recorded. So I, I know them and I know they're tried and true and I know people like them. But then I can just elaborate on them and look at them again from an older person's point of view. Yeah. Well, I'm sure most people have heard some of your recordings, but if anyone who's listening right now has not is there one that you're maybe proudest of or you would point to someone who hasn't yet? Right. Uh, I probably, because I, oh, all of my little babies, my little recorded babies, hmm, a lot of people like The Travels of My Piano One, but I'm fortunate that a lot of people like a lot of the songs I do. I would probably, because I love the material so much, I would probably direct them to the Cole Porter one. Uh, I do, I'm very fond of that. And that came about, in case you're interested, I was at oh. the Algonquin hearing someone sing. 
a Cole Porter song or something like that. And the lady next to me said, oh, gee, uh, where do I go and, and hear these Cole Porter songs? I mean, you could hear Ella Fitzgerald or Frank Sinatra. But that, at that moment, I said, well, why don't, here I am, supposed to be Mr. Cole Porter. Why don't I just do my own picks and my own version of that? And that was the genesis of that album. And uh, every the song is chosen with love and care. And I, I, that would probably be the one that I would direct people to. Yeah. Well, when do you sort of decide if you want to record an act or not? Well, it's a question that I can't be answered these days, but in general, yeah. um, maybe it's a question of funding uh, because you want to do it right. And, um, that's basically it, because I pay for them myself. I don't, in the old days, people had record labels and all that, but no longer. Um, uh, I, it's hard to say. I did. I wanted to record because there was a, a label that you should probably know about called LML. But uh, at any rate, uh, he said, oh, that's a great, why don't you, I'll record that. So he recorded that. And uh, so that was by him. And it was interesting that he recorded that. Lee Lessack, his name is, and his record album cover, if he still runs it, is LML. And I listened to it because, and you know, it's when the baby's born, uh, all the faults and all the mistakes are so evident. Yeah. So I listened to that and I said, oh, I just can't put that out. I just, oh, what, do you hear that note? Oh, my God. So I get very much wrapped up in my personal reaction to what I've just recorded. The audience loved it, but I am, you know, all of a sudden getting this, I don't know, it's like looking at a picture and saying, oh my gosh, I have a pimple on my nose. Mm -hmm. But uh, he said, I, I said, I can't sing that with that note. And that was only, they did it, the guy came into the Algonquin and recorded it live two nights, but still couldn't find the one record that I wanted of it. And he said, well, go back into the studio and they'll fix it. And this was in the days when I went into the studio and I recorded on his piano and I recorded this particular phrase that I had had trouble and so he was so clever that he made it sound as if it were the original one. And I released the album and that's a, a lot of people really like that album the best. So uh, there, are ways of, there are ways of doing it. Um, I wish I'd recorded more of my shows, even from the back of the room, but I didn't as far as the legacy treatment goes. Going through all these cassettes, as I told you I've been doing, uh, I found a bunch of them from me. Many of them, you know, from the back of the room, I had friends who just recorded me because they did in those days. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the quality is not as good as it might be in a studio, and I'm a little bit loath to put that out. But maybe one day, um, just archivally, I'll... Yeah. put it on my website or something because uh, there were a bunch of bunch of shows that I just never got recorded the Candor Never show was never recorded but, but it was a question of money since it had to come out of my pocket I just couldn't afford whatever the $500 or $1,000 it was to make that happen so that's the yeah. answer to that well this is a question that's a little bit more about it's a little more technical, but how do you manage to sort of sustain your voice and energy through a long performance where it's only you? Uh, you mean at the show? Yes. What I do? Oh, it's nothing. There's, there's no, it's nothing as, as composed to 
<laughs> as compared to, uh, I'm reading all about, um, oh, I'm reading, um, I guess it might be you've read it too. Uh, Jim Brochu's book, Waiting oh, for Watching Wings. Yes, I did. I love that book. I loved it. Of so mm. many great stories. And his great stories of David Davy Burns. Uh, if you remember, you know, the oft-employed character man, and he was asked to that final show to do it. And and Jim, because Jim's had been in shows, uh, comments on the, the requirement of that. And civilians might say, oh, well, you just go to show and you sing for three hours, as opposed to me, because I'm at my desk eight hours a day. Well, wrong. The performing energy takes a lot out of you. Mm-hmm. And we all know that. And if, it took, and if the show was on your shoulders and you have become this star, then you have to give it out. It's hard. How, and one wonders, I now, especially not having the strength and energy I've had in former years, how the hell did Ethel Merman, or any of those people on whose shoulders rested those shows, how did they do, how did they do eight performances a week? I don't know. You have to have a very strong constitution and be able to do that. It's, it amazes me that that happens. Uh, so doing the show is no expenditure of energy whatsoever. People often ask me at the end of it, aren't you, aren't you uh, exhausted? I guess they think it's very tiring. When it's, all it is is quite the opposite. It's exhilarating. I'm ready for the second set. Yeah. So it gives me energy. But if I had to do two or three of them a day, in the old days, you know, the vaudeville shows or whatever they do, if uh, that would be tiring, and then I'd take a nap, and I'd have to, I don't know, take a pill or <laughs> shoot up mm-hmm. or something. No, I'm only kidding. But the energy required of that, uh, that's what stars are made of, I suppose. That's mm-hmm. what stars are made of. The ability to do that and to put out that performance or the equivalent of that performance eight times a week. It ain't easy. It's marvelous when you see it. But I, I can't imagine it being easy. But my work is uh, not is uh, nothing as far as that goes. It's exhilarating and not exhausting. Yeah. Well, to add, to use another quote about you, Michael Feinstein said that you have an arch style that evades a lot of other cabaret performers of today. So, what do you think? How do you think you developed that sort of arch style of singing? of performing? Well, that isn't a veiled compliment. I don't know what is. Uh, but I don't know uh, about the art style. I do have a particular style. Some might call it arch. They're mm-hmm. welcome to do that. It's, uh, they might call it Wakawa arch. I'm certainly not placing myself at his level of performance. But it's, it's, a, it's a very specificity of words and, and phrasing and and there is, a, I do have a special style, this is true, which is good. Yeah. Cabaret allows so many different, everybody different has um, a style. And uh, because they are themselves, when I have my master classes here, which I hope one day you'll attend if we ever uh-huh. uh, get back and observe it, uh, you just try to bring out the essence of each person when they're singing, and that becomes their style. So all of my, my style, whatever it is, this came about from decades of singing and decades of finding out what the audience likes and and uh, what I could do. I don't necessarily think it's a style that other people seek, so therefore they're not evading it. But uh, that would imply that they want to be it. I, 
And it's an interesting question. I don't never heard of anybody wanting to sing like Steve Ross, frankly. Um, but the answer to your question is, I don't know. I have a style. I don't necessarily think that others have ever wanted to emulate that style. So I don't really know what Michael means. But I love him anyway. <laughs> well, you also recently, very recently, only last year, performed in a Noel Coward show with Katie Sullivan at the Irish Rep. So right. do you enjoy doing non-solo acts as well? Oh, yes. I've always loved playing, accompanying. I love accompanying singers. I, there's a special pleasure in making music, which is between the singer and the piano players. You know, she's four feet away, and there's an, I always think music's made right in the middle. It's a great thrill to, and you know, the legions, thousands of recordings of pianists and singers. Uh, it's a very special communicative thing that is non-verbal and it's an, an energy communication. Yeah. And with great singers, I feel it. And it's like dancing. And uh, you don't say, well, I'm going to turn left here. You kind of sense what they're doing if they're in total command of their singing. And that's the fun part. There's a little bit of give and take. So I'm accompanying, I'm making them look good, but uh, often I might do a chorus or a piano solo or bring in a, a counter melody that I would not necessarily play for myself. Yeah. I used to um, have a fantasy, I never did it much, of when I was trying to evolve a piano accompaniment, I would have somebody come in and sing the song so that I could be very free in what I was doing in the piano. And then I would kind of remember that when I myself was singing, because no matter how clever you are, uh, you a little bit of the energy pie goes to the singing, and another portion goes to the piano playing. But if you're just singing away from the keyboard, which I every now and then get the pleasure of doing, I'm ever so much more free than I would be at the piano, or vice versa. If I'm just playing for someone else, I come up with a lot of the different things that I wouldn't do for myself. Uh, so I, I enjoy both, in fact, and uh, that's kind of the answer to that question that I can think. Unless I, I, the, the point is I love working with singers, male singers, female singers, whatever. Uh, and if I love creating an arrangement with them, which is often fun, but um, I've had fantastic experiences casually at a party. A good singer's there. I'm there. Hey, would you all sing a song? And we create something really beautiful at that moment. Because there you have the energy of the audience spurring you on and that adrenaline I spoke of. And I've had marvelous things. I said, and as often in the creative process, you don't know where that came from. Is it from mm -hmm. some divine spirit, or I mean, let us not uh, overdo this. But I I don't know, sometimes, you know, I'm not a great, I mean, I'm, I'm a good piano player, but sometimes melodies come, I don't know where they come from. If you're a poet, sometimes you labor on every word. I mean, there are legendary stories of songs being written overnight. And then Alan J. Lerner working on, um, famously, uh, the song, uh, on a clear day, supposedly according to Burton Lane, he had 80 versions of it before wow. he came in with one that was perfect. 
So you can't really legislate or uh, calibrate, actually, when this song is going to come to you or when the melodies are going to come to you. But uh, I, they come to me often when I'm playing for someone else. They, that's when I feel very free at the piano, especially someone as delicious and as musical as KT. I'm not a jazz pianist. I don't do the jazz improvisations that the great jazz pianists do. But for cabaret and standard singing, if I've got a good singer, uh, I love making music with them. And I've, I've, I've been very lucky over my life to play for wonderful singers. But some of the times you have to play what the chart is, what, what's yeah. written, that's what they're expecting to hear, not the improvisational thing that I said at a party. So that's fine too. But I like best when you're both creating on the spot. But I had the immense good luck to have toured and and accompanied. Uh, you may know you know who Liliane Montevecchi was, of course. Yeah. And uh, she and I did an act together, and uh, I loved playing for her. I just mm -hmm. loved playing for her. I played for who else have I played for? We had this conversation last time. Remember, I played mm -hmm. for Margaret Whiting once, I think, and I played for a lot of good singers that are not necessarily singing stars that you would know, but just really good singers. Mm. And uh, that's a great part of the pleasure of music making, in my view. Are there any others of your cabaret singer peers who you would like to perform with as well? People that I haven't yet accompanied, you mean, or performed with? Yes. Uh, well, there's so many. I mean, anybody who's good. Uh, there are so many around. Uh, it's slightly well today. Is is the whole situation is as you know. It's interesting that you're uh, you've launched your podcast right in the middle of this shutdown, and maybe it's maybe in a way it's having people be more reflective, as I feel now when I'm answering your questions about their art. Uh, but it's very frustrating, of course. You can imagine that people are used to mainlining on the pleasure of singing. Uh, the uh, uh, whom else would I like to sing with? Well, I mean, if somebody, if Tony Bennett said, "Would you like to accompany me?" I said, "Yes, I'd like to." But th those great guys, of course, it would be fun. But I'm not in the league of the people who play for them, and uh, Lee Musiker, all the people. But Tony's had a a long litany of fantastic pianists. Uh, and um, I can't think of anybody around. There are so many wonderful young cabaret performers that I've seen on Zooms and this and that, mm -hmm. whose names are not known to me, but they're doing their thing. You know what I would like to do with them? I'll, I'll be honest with you. Some of the... the, the um, I was about to say some of your contemporaries, but I don't know whether mm -hmm. there are many that many 13-year-olds singing the great songbook. Uh, the, uh, I, some of them are singing, I would love to have a session with them because they're, they're young and they're trying to make their statement and they're showing their voice, especially in the pop world and the, you know, the X-Factor world and the you, everybody's got talent world. Uh, you rarely hear a standard, never. You never hear an American standard. They're doing other songs and love, showing off their voices, and that's fine. But I would love to get them just here or on a stool late at night someplace 
or here just to sing a song and have them sing it completely simply yeah. and go through the process of going through the lyric making it their own and my giving an accompaniment uh and i would love to there's some of the singers that as i said before are, they're youthful and they want to show off their chops and they want to sing great stuff but i would love to take them down a path of some great standards and have them just sing them as simply and as nicely as they can. I don't know whether you were able to see the second night of the recent convention had a bunch of uh, younger singers in their teens, as a matter of fact. Um, they were wonderful. They, they were singing the songbook. They had been given scholarships by this particular couple who provided that. And uh, I wish those were available now. They've taken all of them off because of their own rights or something. But there were a couple of young, as in teenagers, singers singing great. Uh, what do you think about Judy Garland, of course, was singing at 12 and 13, so she would have been your contemporary. Uh, the, uh, and they showed a wonderful affection, and they were singing the songs and really liking it. So it isn't the fact that the songs don't speak to other people, but some of the, some of the singers I would really like just to, I don't know, get down and have something and maybe simplify what they're doing, which is what my director did all those years ago. And I was getting very, a little elaborate and uh, a little bit over ornamented and taking me away from the essence of the song. It would be, it'd be interesting for me to work with a, a new singer like that. But I mean, there are great singers that I would never even dream of saying anything to because we would both know what we wanted to do. When we sat down to sing, uh, she would say, let's try uh, You Made Me Love You in E-flat or something. And immediately the climate would be presented and I would know what they were doing and they would know what I was doing. So let's make a second chorus, take it up a little quicker or more quickly. Or That's the final, that would be the spontaneous part of it. But there, there are some singers around. I, I just would uh, like singing it very slowly and and uh, thoughtfully, and maybe finding out more from the lyric, because that's my big focus, than they might have thought earlier. And because there's, there's always more to be said, for, uh, there's always more to be found in a, in a great lyric, as I've gone back to these songs time and time and time again. That's my current. Well, I want to ask you, you were mentioning that when you were putting together your Sondheim act, one of the sort of concerns you had was that the best songs of his were written for women. So have you ever performed women's songs, either with changed lyrics or just as Yeah, a... interesting. Um, well, on that album, I did uh, a version of One More Kiss from Follies. And that's not gender specific. That's just anything, I guess. Uh, Sometimes, though, you know, am I going to be singing My Man, <laughs> Fanny Bryce? I doubt it. Uh, but uh, I haven't really... Sometimes that lyric change is awkward. The great Frank mm -hmm. Sinatra sang, because it's such a fabulous song, he sang The Gal That Got Away, as opposed to The Man That Got Away, the song from A Star Is Born. And he makes it work for him. But uh, sometimes there are songs that are just written from a generic, a gender point of view. I haven't really done 
much of that. I mean, as a joke at a party, maybe, but not not specifically that. There's a, a great series, you could probably find it on YouTube for your own interest, that was around these last few years called Broadway Backwards. Do you know about that? Oh, yes. Yeah. No, that's exactly answering your question. And they're marvelous. And the song's so good, and then you realize that it's just the song, and uh, it's kind of fun to hear the the reversal of the of the roles and uh so it can be done if it's done skillfully it can be very interesting and of course these days everybody's singing different versions of everything everything's up for grabs as it were uh genders are you know that i didn't see the um i don't think it came here the all female company did that wasn't that supposed to be in london or something oh wasn't yes a, i think uh, I think it got to preview, but never got to open. Yeah, I don't think it got. To. So there's that. I mean, that's everything's open field now for genders and for races and everything. I guess that's a good. And you have to think, well, do I really want to see that? But then you go to see it, and wow, what a revelation that is! So mm -hmm. uh, the the jury is still out on all of that, but it's really popular of these days. The answer to your question is, I haven't really done a lot of that. No, I haven't, in fact. And then the last question I want to ask you is when theater and when performance does come back, hopefully sooner rather than later, what kind yeah. of thing would you like to be doing? Well, I, if I, I'll do more of the same. And yeah. as I said, I dust off one of my old shows and, and do it. Uh, I know what works because I've done it all these years. Uh, and I might, if Birdland, for example, which has been my home base in New York, a wonderful club that it is, uh, if they wanted another show, I might try to do that blues show that we came up with. Or yeah. at this point, I think, I don't know, if I, when it comes back, people might not be so willing to or so eager to hear something new. I yeah. think my a sense of it is that if I get another job, that I think the comfort of their remembering what it was, the classic thing that they liked all those years, has come back rather than causing them to think too much about a brand new show, if you follow what I'm saying. So I probably would do more traditional show uh, if when we able to sing again, which I love doing too. I mean, I have all these songs. I could assemble them every which way. Uh, I hope I get a chance to do that because I, I enjoy performing. But as I was saying to a friend of mine, I've had 60 years of it. And uh, it isn't a, how do I put this? It isn't an integral part of my musical happiness. Yeah. Uh, I've done it. It isn't that I don't wish to do it again. And more often I have people over here uh, and, uh, and I sing a song for them and I realize how much I enjoy singing. <laughs> But uh, it isn't something that I yearn or require to do for my own pleasure or for my own whatever fulfillment. Mm. Uh, although I enjoy doing it, I'm, I'm hoping that this new project of mine, recording here, might satisfy me in the music making department. At any rate, the songs are already there. They're always there. God bless the American Songbook. Mm. I hope to be mining it for gold for mm. many years to come.
Thank you so much for joining us today. It was an honor for me to be able to hear all your great stories and insights. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to tune back in tomorrow, which is only a day away, to hear my interview with Broadway star Michael Rupert. Tony winner Michael Rupert started his career at the age of 15, starring in Candor and Ebb's The Happy Time, and has worked steadily ever since, including playing Marvin in falsettos in all of the trilogy. He also wrote and starred in the musical Mail. His other numerous acting credits include Pippin, Legally Blonde, Sweet Charity, and more. I hope you all enjoy that episode too. Thank you for tuning in.